0: This is a reading of a collected works of Rudolf Steiner, number 218, entitled, Spirit as Sculptor of the Human Organism, Uh, translated by Matthew Barton. This is Lecture 4, given in Dornach on the 22nd of October, 1922. Today I want to show how a certain understanding of the human being can also serve as a foundation for considering broader historical contexts. Tomorrow, from this perspective, we may then be able to gain insight into some contemporary phenomena. The day before yesterday, I spoke about the human constitution itself, and today I want to embark on this again from another angle. If we consider the human being in his mundane daily life, initially from the most ordinary everyday aspect, we see that he has to eat to live. He has to ingest the substances of nature, derived from the animal, vegetable, and to some extent also the mineral kingdoms. What he thus absorbs, however, undergoes a huge transformation within the human organism. The foods we eat ordinarily, prepared at most by cooking, enter our organism initially in a form more or less as they exist in the surrounding world, although perhaps a little modified. The air we breathe in enters us, likewise, in the condition in which it exists in our surroundings. This is true, too, of more important things still, such as light, but we will leave this aside for the time being. Now, food and air have to undergo a huge transformation within us in order to fill our organism and in a sense become human within it. An outward account of the process involved here is very familiar to us nowadays. We ingest food, as I have said, in more or less its original form, although it may have been prepared a little for eating. We work on it initially, especially through secretions from glands and the rest of the digestive tract. We take it into us, fluidize it, saturate it with a substance called tyolin, which is secreted by the salivary glands. Then we draw the food further into our digestive tract. I do not need to describe the whole tract to you, but I describe the process involved. As we absorb and ingest foods and process them within us, they are changed from what they were originally. What they become within us could never have come about through external processes. In the chemical laboratory we can subject foods to all kinds of processes, but this will not mirror what happens to food when it enters our stomach, and from there the digestive tract. There, food becomes something quite different from what it was to begin with. The first thing that occurs is the eradication from the food of every trace of outer life. People eat meat drawn from their external surroundings, from the mineral, from the animal kingdom, but in doing so, mastication and the further process of digestion Drive out everything that this food represents within animal bodies, and likewise all life that vegetables possess in the plant kingdom. All the life they possess, by virtue of being plants, has to be driven out of them. The only things we absorb as they exist in the outer world are mineral constituents as such. If we add salt, already min- mineral in nature, to a meal, or sugar, which has been prepared in a way that renders it dead, even if it may originally have been drawn from the organic realm, we have in fact ingested something dead, and this undergoes the least transformation within us, merely one that could be induced externally in a lab. But everything that enters our organism from the animal and plant kingdom has to be first thoroughly killed off, if I may put it like that, Our cooking also involves a kind of preparatory killing when we expose foods to heat and so on. Our digestion takes this further, thoroughly accomplishes it, so that by the time our food has undergone a certain inner development and arrives in the lower digestive organs, the intestines, basically everything has been expelled to which they were originally subject, all that was governed by the animal's astral and etheric body and all that was subject to the plant's etheric body and so forth. On its journey from mouth to intestines, all food has to be rendered dead. As food is conveyed to the glandular organs, which lead it onward from the intestines into the lymph vessels and blood vessels, it is then re-enlivened again. Our food must first become dead inside us, and then re-enlivened. We could not endure a perpetuation within us of life as it exists in an animal whose meat we eat or of the plant we eat. At most, inorganic nature can be absorbed without offending the laws at work within us. We could not, say, eat cabbage and let it approach the villi in our intestine with the same etheric forces the cabbage possesses when still a living plant. The etheric and astral attributes possessed by our food first have to be got rid of. And then our own etheric body must be able to absorb and re-enliven what we ingest. The life in our food has to come from us. And this occurs as food passes from the intestines through the blood vessels to the heart. You can picture it like this. Food reaches our blood. And as this blood fills the heart, our etheric body absorbs the initially dead food we ingested. When food arrives in the intestines, the last traces of the external world are divested from it, but here they are re-enlivened as they pass toward the heart. There's a drawing. This re-enlivening means, in fact, that the foodstuffs have been absorbed by our own etheric body. But if this were all that happened, they would possess too little of an earthly character. And then we would be beings who possessed nothing but a mouth and digestive organs through to the heart, and we would start to be angels, since our etheric body could absorb the food and completely dissolve it. We could not be earthly. We would have to be just mouths flying around with attached gullets, with stomach and intestines and heart and Then, you see, our etheric body would absorb everything. We would have nothing but an etheric body, and the food would just evaporate in the ether body. We could not be earthly human beings if this were so. That we can be is due to us absorbing oxygen from the air. The oxygen in the air is introduced into the food permeated by the etheric body and this means we can go on being human beings of flesh and blood here on earth between birth and death. And there's a drawing. You can say that the oxygen makes everything that would otherwise be dispersed in our etheric body into being alive in an earthly sense. Oxygen is the substance that transposes into earthly nature what would otherwise only form etherically. Now we have arrived at the connection between heart and lungs. The heart would not yet render us earthly, as human beings, but would only bring us to the point of connecting our ether body to the heart and flying around as angels on earth, as it were. Angels, though, who might have attributes, some would think rather unlovely, such as a mouth, intestines and blood vessels, through to a heart, but because the heart is in connection with the lungs and takes in oxygen, the food we ingest is not just etherized, but also rendered earthly. And now it becomes necessary to incorporate into the astral body what our etheric body has absorbed, so that we can be earthly human beings and what has been pervaded by oxygen. Everything that has developed to the extent of becoming an activity of heart and lungs, must now be taken up by the whole organism, and this happens in a way which involves the astral body too. The human kidney system mediates this activity, eliminating unusable parts of the substances that are absorbed, but conveying everything else into the whole organism in ways which are not described anywhere in modern physiology, yet which do exist. Here, the whole mush, if I can call it that, or chyme, which remains alive, after first being killed off entirely in the intestines and then re-enlivened and pervaded by oxygen, is conveyed into the astral body by the activity of the kidney system, whose influence extends throughout the organism and radiates everywhere. The astral body can now help in the further forming of what food brings about in us, and there's a drawing. This astral organism, in so far as it gains impetus from the kidney system, is now in turn connected with the head and neurosensory system, which in a sense is like a covering over it. And together, the kidney and head system continually work in a way that forms into specific organs. What heart activity basically renders fluid and formless. If only our mouth, stomach, intestines, heart, and lungs existed, we wouldn't have any solid organs. The stomach itself would have to be a fluid, inwardly mobile organ, and so would our lungs and heart. None of this would be solid. These organs are shaped by the influence of the kidneys, and the latter are aided in this by what emanates from the head. You see... Organs not only have to be formed during childhood, but on a continuing basis, for they are continually being destroyed. Over the course of seven to eight years, an organ, such as the stomach, is entirely destroyed. Its substance disappears and is continually renewed. This means that formative forces must always be available to renew these organs. During childhood, a great deal more work of this kind has to be done but these form-giving forces are still there later on. It happens like this, and there's another drawing. The kidney system streaming out these forces in one direction would only create organs in a one-sided way. For instance, it would shape a lung in a way that was nicely delimited behind, but fluid in front here, flowing away. It must encounter a power emanating from the head So, that the front of the organ is shaped by this influence. Individual organs are formed in the encounter between the forces streaming from the kidneys and those emanating from the head, which inhibit the former. This endows the organs with shaped and rounded contours. The influence from the head forms surfaces from without, while the kidneys supply a kind of streaming or radiation. Into the organism. It is a bit like what happens if I try to sculpt a form. I take plaster or some kind of soft substance in one hand, and then learn to build up the plaster with one hand, and there's another drawing, while the other smooths it down. The first upbuilding movement represents the kidneys. I could do this by having some kind of tub and taking the substance from it. I sling it up, smooth it off at the top. And in this way, obtain these organs, formed really from an outstreaming and rounding off. Thus, our organs are formed in connection with the kidney system and the head system, and inside them, the forces of the astral body are at work. This is something, therefore, that involves an extremely vigorous change to the nitrogen, which here is already a long way from having the properties it does outside us. The nitrogen that still resembles external nitrogen becomes uric acid and urine and is eliminated. But what streams out from the kidneys and is assimilated is really a nitrogen that has been inwardly altered in correspondence with the active powers of the astral body. And this is something quite different from external nitrogen. What we take in as food is driven to the point where it is incorporated into astrality, into the astral body of the human organism. These processes I have described here occur in animals too, in a somewhat modified way. The animal has these processes too, and in fact in higher animals they proceed still further. In the lower animals, though, one finds at most just hints of what I will now describe. The higher animals possess it by virtue of branching off from the human race. They still have it, although in a deformed and degenerate state. Something else shines into all that develops here. So first we have this driving of foodstuffs into a dead state. At the end of this process we have the pancreas as one of the last glands that advance the whole process, so that driven toward the lymph, food is enlivened and can be absorbed by the etheric body. Then, through the communication between heart and kidneys, everything is driven into the astral body. But now the capital I must also be engaged. The I has to lay claim to everything existing in our organism. Now, I have already described to you how the etheric and astral organism must lay claim to whatever becomes part of us how the kidney system absorbs it and radiates it into the astral, and how it becomes earthly in nature with the aid of nitrogen. Otherwise, if nitrogen did not work within us, we would inevitably be angel-like, for emanating from the kidney system, nitrogen sustains the astral body within the realm of earth. But if the liver system were not also present, the whole thing would not configure us to allow the eye to participate too. The liver system drives the whole thing into the eye. Thus you see, capital I. Thus you see, this you see is a continuation of the heart influence, which works right into the intestines. Absorption through the lymph vessels also belongs to the heart. By and large the heart is the organ which, together with the lungs, drives external substances into our etheric body. Then, proceeding further from there, the kidney system drives them into our astral body, and the liver system, with its bile secretions, is what drives all this, all of this into our actual capital I. Only the higher animals possess a gallbladder and liver system. Lower animals do not. Not even bile is found in their bodily substances. So the liver with its unique structure, with the portal vein and so on, and all this can be demonstrated anatomically, conducts everything so that the eye can take hold of it. If all we had were what the kidneys radiate into the body, only the astral body would absorb it. Because we have the liver, which secretes bile that mixes with the chyme in our intestine, so imbuing it with liver secretions it can then be driven into our eye organism In other words, our eye organism through the liver, the latter largely represented in physical substance by hydrogen, participates in the whole composition of the human organism. We do not in fact need to take in anything of a living astral nature from outside us. What we take in from outside us we first have to reconfigure within our own organ system so that it can be incorporated into our own astral, etheric, and eye systems. Here we have what I would call our whole normal organization. Just reflect on how this all has to be in accord and work together. For instance, the activity of the kidneys cannot be interrupted, and if it is because of kidney stone or cirrhosis, the astral body cannot act. Or, rather, the reverse is true. When the astral body does not work properly, this leads to kidney stones or cirrhosis. When such a condition arises, this gives us a tangible picture or reflection of what is really happening in the astral body, just as heart disease shows us precisely and pictorially what is happening in the human etheric body. Last time I said that there is even a rhythmic accord, the upstreaming from the kidney always involves four pulses compared to the single rounding impetus that emanates from above, from the head. And this is the same relationship of one to four as we find expressed in the breath and the pulse. If I may use this comparison once again, I would have to round things off with one hand four times more slowly than the pulse coming from the other. This, in fact, is what the organism does. All this must be in the subtlest accord, otherwise things go wrong. Being ill means, in fact, that this accord is disrupted. Let us assume that the etheric body is working fine, but the astral body is not powerful enough to absorb all that streams over from the heart to the kidneys and assimilate it in the right way. This can be because the etheric body is working too strongly. I said that it was working fine, but let us assume for a moment that its action is too vigorous. If the etheric body works too strongly, and the astral body is normal, kidney stones, blockages, can develop with their distinct consequences. If the etheric body is fine, but the astral body works too strongly, the kidney is not engaged sufficiently. Because the astral body is working too strongly, it engages with what streams across without the kidney playing its proper and necessary part in regulation. Thus the kidney is overlooked, not involved properly, leading to kidney cirrhosis, which at the same time has follow-on effects that lead to heart dysfunction and deterioration. In this way, you see, things occurring in the human organism are interrelated. The deterioration of organs can show us how different levels of the human organism physical body, etheric body, astral body, and I are not working together in the right way. We just need to realize that all these things have to be in accord with each other and work together properly. Let us assume that a certain supersensible aspect, say the astral body, does not properly inform a particular organ system in us. There are two ways in which this can happen. Either the impulses emanating from the kidney system, remembering that a rounding impetus comes from the head and a radiating one from the kidney system, are stimulated too strongly, so that in fact everything working from the heart toward the kidney system gives rise to excessive stimulus of the kidney system. In this hyper-stimulus we actually find the original cause of all inflammatory conditions, of all inflammatory and ulcerative conditions in the human organism. We just have to discern how an inflammation arises in the organism and then try to remedy things medicinally so as to curtail this excessive stimulus of kidney activity. The simplest means to achieve this is to try in some way to inhibit too strong a radiation of inner bodily warmth, always a concomitant of this, by administering the specific substances that develop in the flowering organs of plants. This can bring about an inner cooling. The the peculiarity of substances that develop in the blossoms of plants is that they can be used to combat inflammations, since they engender an inner cooling in the organism. On the other hand, it may be that there is an excessive sculpting activity from the head, which counteracts kidney activity. This gives rise to tumor-like formations. Here, the plastic, rounding, or one might say crystallizing activity is too strong. By means of an external warmth application, though this might be done in the right way, excuse me, though this must be done in the right way, we try to envelop the swelling or turgescence in warmth applied externally, to bring about a gradual healing from without. And there's a diagram. All such swellings are really healed from without. We have to ensure that the swelling is enveloped and irradiated by certain substances that are injected into the organism and diffused through it. When you succeed in doing this, in irradiating the swelling from without, it can dissolve and cease. If you have an inflammation, by contrast, you have to introduce a medicine via the digestive tract into the organ where the inflammation is located, introducing a cooling effect via the digestion. And inflammation has to be treated from within. One just has to find ways to do this. Every substance is disseminated in the human organism in a specific way. For instance, there are substances which, when administered orally, take no notice of the esophagus. It is irrelevant to them. Pepsin, Tylen, and so forth only take notice of the heart. Other substances disregard the heart. They are conducted to the kidneys through the stomach and heart, and only begin to act when they reach the kidneys. Thus every substance has its own inner affinity with an organ and one has to find the right substance to use medicinally. For instance, there are substances which, if you inject them, would completely disregard a stomach carcinoma, having no affinity with it, but would take notice of, say, a breast carcinoma. So we have to find a means to inwardly combat a tumor or an inflammation, or to tackle something from without, to besiege it, if you like, Tumorous growths must be surrounded and besieged. Things within the organism must be studied in this way and must all accord and cohere naturally by understanding how these higher aspects of the human being work and act. It is quite impossible to gain insight into the kidney simply by a post-mortem examination. All you see then is the kidney lying next to the liver and can say only that they are both composed of cells in diverse ways. In fact, the kidney has an intimate connection with the astral body and the liver with the eye capital, and this is what endows them with their specific character. Without knowing this, it is quite pointless to consider or define these organs. If you take an organ such as the spleen, you will find that ordinary physiology and medicine don't have much to say about it. In the relevant textbooks you will find very little about the spleen, a note perhaps to say that little is known about its function. You can find this in all the textbooks, just have a look. Nor is this at all surprising. The genius of language is in fact a great deal wiser in this instance, and in many others too, than science. The word spleen is very accurate, for it is connected with all human activities that go above and beyond the capital I and approach the spirit self. The spleen, in fact, is the organ of the spirit self and takes us a long way into the realm of spirit. But approaching the spirit self requires persistence and endurance. Most people cannot endure really spiritual realm. And this means that spleen activity in them does not stimulate them to spiritual activity, but they become, quote, full of spleen, close quote. Instead, they become downcast and irritable. Spleen is nothing other than spirit which devours itself in the intestines. And the word spleen is therefore an excellent name, pointing as it does to a spiritual quality for which the spleen is the corresponding organ. This is why the spleen has a balancing effect, as you can read in the pamphlet written by Frau Dr. Kalisko and published by our Institute of Physiology in Stuttgart. She presents spleen activity in relation to blood platelet formation and all digestive activity. This is an excellent first systematic and scientific account of spleen activity. If such a study were published by any other research institute, it would soon come to be regarded as very innovative. But whenever something inspired by our society emerges, it fails to make headway in the world. No mention is made of it anywhere. It is not about praising something, but it would be good to be mentioned, because such things could have a beneficial effect in the world as it is today. However, to make things known in the world, they first have to be spoken about in our anthroposophical society. I wonder how many of our members have taken, full advantage, have taken full advantage of the fact that these very important things are available to them. If the anthroposophical society itself does not take any notice of work we accomplish, it is hardly surprising that it attracts no public attention either. We not only have to dispense with interest in our findings from the public, but in the most important matters, from the anthroposophical anthroposophical society as well. But I say this only in passing, today at least. It really is important that we come to understand the human organism, and we can only do so if we gain insight into its higher aspects. So you can see how subtly these things need to accord with each other. Something will immediately go awry in the organism if the slightest disorder affects the astral organism. At this moment, the kidneys will cease to function properly, and then we get all the repercussions of a kidney malfunction. But this is not true simply for the human being as such, or in general, but changes as we develop through the ages. Our organization is extremely subtle, but does not always remain constant. If we look back only a few centuries, not much, of course, in the overall span of evolution, we come to a period when our modern age, that of the consciousness-soul epoch, began. Tracing things back through the 15th, 14th, and 13th centuries, we return to an earlier Christian period. And however grotesque this sounds to people nowadays, we find that roughly from the 4th through to the 14th centuries, kidney function was the most important aspect of the human organism, especially for the civilized world, whereas liver function superseded it in importance Thereafter, Over the centuries and still more over millennia, human anatomy and physiology does alter, and we cannot study history if we do not attend to the subtle structures of the human organism and discern how changes in the prevailing culture, such as the transition from the medieval period to the modern era, are also connected with transformation of the whole of our human organization. We have to develop a sense for these things once more, for otherwise we will never bridge the gulf that opens up between science on the one hand, which grows ever more irreligious and ends up relying on its scalpels, probes and sensors, and religious life on the other, which has nothing left to say about the world, but merely addresses human beings' instinctual, egotistic desires for a life after death. These things stand in crass juxtaposition. All our religious life today has forgotten that God created the world. It speaks of the divine but forgets that God created the world and that we can find everywhere in the world's phenomena the traces of divine creation. Rather than just uttering vacuous and abstract generalities about cultural developments throughout history, we need to know that via our delicate human organism, divine creative powers, transform the human being by fine-tuning this infinitely subtle mechanism of our human organism and that by first plucking more strongly on the string of kidney function and then on that of liver function a quite different cultural music emerges. Only when we do not restrict ourselves to a view of God as separate from the world itself but instead trace God's workings in detail in each type of bodily function, can we find what we will need in future. Otherwise we will cultivate nothing but abstraction in the end and end up with an utterly materialistic science. Only then, excuse me, only when we can penetrate right through to specific details of how divine creation configures substance and works within it, will we be able to imbue religion with science, and lead science in turn back to religion. And so we discover that at the transition arising in the 12th, 13th, and 14th centuries, an outlook develops that I have previously described from the most diverse angles, which comes to expression in the Grail legend, in the legend of Parsifal, and in all that was conceived by poets of the age, such as Wolfram von Eschenbach, Hartmann von Aue, and Gottfried. Of Strasbourg. You can find these motifs in their writing. In the Parsifal poem, the authentic version, one finds a motif especially that expresses the human being's need to develop toward what is called selda in those days. This is a certain inner sense of joy, selda, close to what we might call bliss or blessedness, but not quite the same. Selda means to be imbued with a sense of inner joy, of a certain kind. This motif surfaces in and in fact dominates European culture in the 13th and 14th centuries. All poetic themes and all prose ones too, especially the Parsifal theme, are pervaded by this idea. And everything strives toward it. People strive for this celda, this inner sense of joy or bliss. It is not irreligious, nor simply comfortable inner happiness, but is really a state in which they are ensouled by the Creator's divine powers. Why does this arise? It is caused by the change in emphasis from kidney to liver activity in the human being. Physiology can help us understand this. Earlier physiologists were, of course, better physiologists, in a sense, than modern materialistic physiologists. I am thinking really, when I say this of the writers of the Old Testament who said the following about bad dreams, for example, quote, "The Lord punished me last night through my kidneys." Close quote. This knowledge of certain connections between abnormal kidney activity and bad dreams persisted, and in the eighth, ninth, and tenth centuries, for instance, people were still deeply convinced that kidney activity renders you heavy. People felt that the kidney had gradually acquired something of a heavy quality. Naturally, to say something is weighing on you is just a metaphor, suggesting there's something you can't get the better of. They felt bound to the earthly realm. Physical permeation of the organism with bile, by contrast, was connected with selda quality, a sense of being imbued with this as an experience of deliverance, inner deliverance. It was experienced as an inner yet divinely filled sense of bliss, a striving away from the dullness of the kidney. You see, the kidney also develops thinking activity, a dull thinking activity mediated by the system of ganglia, which is then connected in turn to the spinal cord and the brain system. It develops in particular the kind of thinking that also played a particular and major role in the Middle Ages. At that time it was called mental dullness, or tumpd, excuse me, tumpheit. And this developed from tumpheit to selda, to illumined bliss, it became the theme of Parsifal. Maybe read that again. And this development from tumpheit to selda, to illuminated bliss, became the theme of Parsifal. Parsifal develops from Tumpheit to Selder, from dullness to inner joy. We should not think of this only in abstract terms, but also regard it with some feeling and sensitivity. To begin with, Parsifal is a man of his time, emerging from a culture that has grown ponderous. He is sluggish. Only later does Zelda enter him after he has passed through a state of doubt. Doubt inhabits him, causing turmoil in his cardiovascular system. Only after passing through this condition does he find access to inner joy, to Zelda. It is indeed possible to trace in the human organism the moods at work in the broader history and evolution of the world. Leading individuals such as those who fashioned the Parsifal motive were pioneers, in a sense, precursors of this new organization we possess in the modern era, who experienced the transition from an older kidney activity to a new liver activity. We should not dismiss such things. We should not say that these things are just part of our lower physical and sensory nature. After all, God did not consider it beneath him to create lower matter, but went ahead and did so. And our task, equally, is to trace the divine activity of creation right into the furthest reaches of the material world, rather than keeping aloof from such things as dainty historians, rather than just commenting on the Parsifal motif while refraining from lower matters such as physiological functions. The world is a unity, and to understand the great contexts of history We must at the same time be able to shine a light upon specific human circumstances and conditions. In former times, and in the Middle Ages still, people retained traces of such knowledge. You can discover this in accounts such as that of poor Henry, which show how moral healings occur and such like. These things should give you some sense, initially, that all human knowledge is a great whole and that the highest religious ideas relate to what people often regard as so lowly that they fail to pay it any attention. Modern science in its present form is to blame for this outlook, for it ignores the fact that we must trace the spirit through into matters' furthest reaches, and only then will learn to understand the world. Only then will we also raise ourselves to a truly religious view of the world, rather than one which is commonly egotistical, because it addresses people, people's egotistic speculations without informing our actual knowledge of things. And this, in turn, leads to the decline of civilization, rather than to its renewal. The renewal of civilization is, after all, connected with people's capacity to become illumined and to use this light within to observe the world in light rather than in darkness. Modern physiology and anatomy whose insights are gained by a post-mortem scalpel and merely study symptoms of illness observed by material means will not succeed in grasping the inner nature of the human being. We really only understand tylin and pepsin in the food we assimilate and break down if we see it like this. We ingest food, break it down, enliven and astralize it and transform it into the capital I. Conveyed into the lymph glands, conveyed to the heart which energizes it, irradiated by the kidneys and rendered entirely astral, it is then absorbed by liver function and led over into the eye. Then all this can be absorbed by pancreatic activity, and through this activity we can either become enthusiastic as someone who receives strength from the world of spirit, or instead a person of spleen, a pessimist who just wants to sit there on his chair and not let the spirit take hold of him, who prefers not to think much. There are plenty of such people around today, and they drive you to desperation by sitting there like a heavy lump, as if they had no head at all. Pancreatic activity, which could be something lofty in us, in fact has a crushing effect on such people. They have spleen rather than enthusiasm, and today this manifests in the most diverse ways. What we need nowadays is a kind of work that transforms spleen into enthusiasm, into fire, so that people wake up and create a civilization that is awake and not somnolent. Anthroposophy ought to engender this, being awake, being enthusiastic, transforming knowledge into real activity, into actions and deeds, so that we do not only know something, but something emerges and develops through anthroposophy. Only then does anthroposophy have its goal and purpose and can also really achieve this goal. But if anthroposophy makes you somnolent, this means you accord too much that you accord much too much respect to the physical quality of the pancreas rather than making the pancreas's high spiritual qualities fruitful in you. And this points to something that modern humanity greatly needs, fire, enthusiasm, the capacity to be fired by something. Until this is possible, we will keep on thinking only of ourselves, which means placing too much importance on the uric acid secreted in us, urine whose real task is not just is not to just circulate in cell and protein but to be transformed into the fluctuating protein that in turn entirely constitutes us basically we are a large living cell continually involved in lively motion we have carbon in us then acquire oxygen as food is etherized Acquire nitrogen as food is irradiated by kidney activity. Acquire hydrogen as liver function plays into everything in relation to sense activity. And by this means also already acquire sulfur, either of the inappropriate kind of which people mostly speak today, or of the proper kind. But we also acquire what is needed to ensure we are a living being, consisting of protein, carbon, oxygen, nitrogen, and also sulfur. But as I said, this must be the right kind of sulfur. Today, too, much of the other type is present, the type referred to by students in speaking of their professor of philosophy in Würzburg. He had become so dull and boring that in the end there were only two students still attending his classes. And then even they had had enough and gave up on him. And then someone wrote, Sulfur den on his door. That is not the kind of sulfur we need, which is far too prevalent today. Today, instead, people must be fully alive, thoroughly so, must be ensouled, imbued with spirit. And that's something we can learn, too, especially if we trace the spirit through into the furthest reaches of the world of substance. And only then we will develop a physiology worthy of the name, which can really give therapeutic support To human nature. The end of Lecture Four.